Let's bow our heads in prayer. We gather this day, Father, to give all thanksgiving and praise to you. We worship you, we adore you, and we come before you. Praising you, Father, for the glorious gift of your Son. Thanking you for your gift of grace, mercy, peace, love, trials, dark clouds, and sunshine. With the gift of salvation by the precious blood of Jesus, we give you thanks. Father, we pray for the nations today, your work around the world. We pray for the leaders of nations and particularly of our nation. We, we lift up this day our president and his family that you would Give him wisdom in the decisions that he has to make. We lift up our vice president and his family to you. Protect them, guard them, guide them. We pray for our governor and her family, our mayor and his family, our police chief, our fire chief, all those, Father, that you've placed above us. We lift them up to you this day and ask you to guide their lives and draw them to yourself as only you can. These leaders that make decisions that affect millions and millions of lives, too, Father, we have missionaries out there around the world, and they affect for the kingdom millions and millions of lives. And we ask, Lord, for your safety and protection, even as some missionaries lead in worship today in dangerous places that you would guard them, that you would guide them, that you would uh, pr- protect them and, 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 and empower them by your Spirit and speak through them as they proclaim the Word, even as we do it today. And we pray for our church today. May we be the lighthouse you've called us to be here on Bees Ferry Road, a lighthouse to this community, shining your light wherever we go, and in whatever we do. And even today, Father, we pause to thank you for your word. The precious gospel that flows throughout your powerful word. And we pray, Lord, that you might speak through our pastor this day. That you might empower him with the message that you have given him that you might open our hearts to receive this message with power and grace. And we will praise you as long as we live. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
All right. Can you hear me now? Okay. Technology. Love it. Sometimes. If you will, uh, while you're waiting on me to uh, get, get in order up here, if you would turn to John chapter 10, probably already there. Well, did you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving? Yes. Either you really did or you all just lied. I don't know which one it is, but I'm, I'm good with it either way. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I hope you had some time to, um, to relax, to enjoy a good meal, spend time with your families. Um, what, what a great holiday. What a great thing to observe as a nation, a day of, of Thanksgiving, a day of, of gratitude. You know, that, that holiday roots all the way back to the, to the very beginning of our, of our nation. It's debatable. There are people who actually spend a lot of time debating about where that began. We won't debate it this morning, but at least it roots back to the to the early pilgrims who came across on the Mayflower and early on in their time uh, paused and gave uh, a dedicated and focused time of thanksgiving to God for his protection and his provision uh, for them. Uh, and, and if you think of uh, the, about the history of our nation, if you think if there's ever been a more underprivileged uh, crew in this country than, than them, I'm not sure who they are. If you think of what they endured to, to get to the shores of America, a small handful of people on a, um, a, a ship, if you will, um, no homes, no government agency to help them build homes, uh, no means of transportation except their legs. Um, the only food they had didn't come from Walmart. It came from uh, the sea or the forest. They had to go get it for themselves. They had no, very little money, no place to spend it even if they had it. Uh, very few amusements for themselves. No real means of communication with their families back in England. No Social Security, no Medicare. Uh, you name it. They, they, were pretty much, um, they were pretty much down to, to bare bones. But if you'd have called them underprivileged to their face, I think they probably would have punched you in the nose. Um, they didn't sense that about themselves. They didn't feel that way about themselves. In fact, um, uh, they thought themselves to be particularly blessed by God. And because of that, they stopped and intentionally gave thanksgiving to him for what he had done for them and in their lives. And our nation has consistently recognized that, uh, at least in our early history, um, that that our our, our blessings as a nation are the result of, of the blessing of God. Not just blessings in general, but blessings from Almighty God. That there was a God who was inclined to bless a nation who bowed before him. Abraham Lincoln, in uh, one of his early Thanksgiving proclamations, uh, said some things that, that you haven't heard presidents say for quite some time in our country. In 1863, October 3rd, in his proclamation, uh, he speaks about, um, about the bounties that God has blessed the nation with. And he says to these bounties, which we, are, we so constantly enjoy, that we are prone to forget the source from which they come. Others have been added, which are so extraordinary in nature, that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. It goes on to talk about um, 
civil war and its unequaled magnitude and severity. And he goes on to talk about in this proclamation how apart from on the battlefield, people have acted civilly, and that in itself was a, a, a blessing. And in, in spite of, he says there, the nation's great sins, in spite of this war, this bloody war that's going on, Almighty God has still, in spite of these things, blessed them, he recognizes, with all sorts of abundance, with all sorts of things like wealth and settlements and mines and iron and coal and all the things that those things have yielded for the nation have been abundantly uh, re- received as blessings and how the nation has steadily increased and grown uh, and all these things he lists out as blessings. And he goes uh, on to say that these things are gracious gifts of the Most High God who, dealing with us in anger for our sins, has nevertheless remembered mercy. And he goes on to say, it seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged, all these blessings, as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up to the ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings that they do also with humble penitence for our national uh, perverseness and disobedience commend to his tender care all those who become widows and orphans and mourners and sufferers in this lamentable civil strife. And he goes on to, uh, to, to call people to prayer for Almighty God's hand to heal the wounds of a nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, and tranquility. I mean, just an amazing address, really, from a president of the United States. Uh, really saturated with this, this idea that everything that's good in, in the nation is a, is a direct result of a beneficent uh, almighty God who has blessed abundantly. Even in spite of uh, national sins, even in spite of, the, of, of, of having a population that is populated with people who have in many ways not acknowledged his goodness and so forth, he declares a day of thanksgiving. I think one of the things that's foundational to our nation, its early success, is this attitude of thanksgiving and gratitude. Um, uh, You see it permeated through presidential uh, addresses like this, and you see it in other historical documents that, that, uh, that, that show us the things that were being said and written and thought about in the early days of our nation. Since those days, God has blessed this nation tremendously. Can you agree with that statement at least? We have, as a nation, uh, experienced incredible blessing. We are, uh, I guess it may be debatable, but I, I think it's not, that we are the most powerful and blessed nation in the, in the world. Um, hard, to, hard to argue that. And you would think with all of the blessing, you would think with all of the ways God has smiled upon our nation that we would be the most grateful nation on the planet these days. But I don't know if you navigate around in places that I do, but my observation is that The exact opposite seems to be true. It seems that the more God has blessed us and the more affluent we've become as a nation, the more blessed we've been as a nation, it seems rather than becoming more grateful, we tend to become less. Do you see that trend? I see that. The less thankful we are. We're not drawn more to the attitude of Abraham Lincoln, but we're drawn more to a different attitude, an attitude that says 
We deserve what we have. We've earned what we have. Not so much from God. We live in a culture now that's, that's, that revolves completely around me. Everything revolves completely around me, doesn't it? It's not about God. It's about me. Um, wealth and materialism, they've stolen our thankful hearts and replaced them with lust and greed, self-pleasure. Everything, if you think about it, in the, the prevailing culture around us is geared not to make us more grateful, right? It's geared to do the exact opposite. It's, it's geared, it's geared to, to make us less grateful. If you just take, for example, what goes on in, in advertising in our culture, all the advertising world around us, whether it be TV or print or anywhere else, it's not geared to make us grateful. It's geared to do what? It's geared to make us ungrateful. It's geared, it's geared to, to make us discontent with what we have and who we are and to cause us to envy and desire more, right? Whether it be the body we have, right? Is there any, do you ever, do you ever watch a commercial that says, man, go look at yourself in the mirror. You look great just the way you are. Have you ever seen that commercial? You've never seen that commercial. No, it's, it's more like, boy, look at yourself. You're a little overweight, but if you get our product, what, what'll happen? Oh, you'll lose it. It'll be great. But in order to get their product, you have to first be what? Well, you have to first be unhappy with, discontented with who you are and what you are. Whether it's your body or your car, look out in the driveway. That's This is the, every car commercial. Look out in your driveway. You see that old jalopy out there compared to this new car, right? And the whole point is to get you to be dissatisfied with what you have and lustful of what you don't, right? It's not geared toward gratitude. There's no car, there's no car dealer or car manufacturer on the planet that's going to spend the money to produce a commercial that says to you, look out in your driveway and be grateful for the car that you drive. You don't need our old new thing, right? The one you've got's just fine. No. It's advertising. It's everything around us. We're constantly inundated with messages that say, you're not good the way you are. You, you, you're, you're not complete the way you are. You shouldn't be satisfied with the things that you have. You can't be content with where you are. There's something else you should have. There's someone else you should be. Everything is not right. And if you'll just do this or pursue that or acquire this product, then everything will be fine. But it's a cycle because we've, we've lived for generations now buying into that, buying those products and doing those things. And the more we buy them and the more we do, we still have to become grateful, right? We still have to become satisfied. It's, it's got us thinking in terms of, of, of ingratitude, of always being ungrateful for what we have and who we are and always wanting to be what we're not or someone else. The Bible tells us as time moves on through history that that's exactly what's going to happen, not just in our nation, but in the world. That ingratitude is going to be a sign of the times, if you will, as we move toward the end. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, and what? They'll be ungrateful. They'll be ungrateful along with unholy and heartless and unappeasable and slanderous and all these other things, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, all of these things right in the middle of all that is what? It's this, this thing, this characteristic called ingratitude. They'll be ungrateful, ungrateful. 
So as time goes on, ingratitude becomes more prevalent. In Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, um, it speaks to us of forgetting God, and it's a fitting picture of what we're dealing with today. Paul writes, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or what? Or give thanks to him, right? They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were dark, and claiming to be wise, they became fools. One of the the results of ingratitude is we become fools. We become fools. We forget the source of our of our blessing. We forget the source of every good and perfect thing that comes into our lives, and we mistakenly believe that we deserve them or we've earned these things, and so on and so forth. And we become fools. But it's not just the culture around us. It's not just the prevailing culture. It is an epidemic problem within the church. It is an epidemic problem among Christian people. Uh, you know, it, it's one thing to, to be on the inside of the church and just constantly be pointing fingers outside the walls of the world and saying how awful the world is and how ungodly the world is. But the reality is these things, uh, th- these things are, are rooted down in the hearts of God's people just as much. We have better ways of covering over them. Better ways of of um, not making it so obvious, but ingratitude is an issue within the church as well. Um, it, it's 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 surprising to me how easy it is for me to be ungrateful and how quickly I can slide into ingratitude. And it's surprising to me how often I navigate around uh, people who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who are constantly griping and complaining and dissatisfied with where they are in life, with what's going on in their lives, and are, and are characterized by a general ingratitude. But it's prevalent. And there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, we could list a few. One, one of the things is just in general we're affluent, and with affluence tends to come ingratitude. Several years back, uh, Charles Barkley um, was having a conversation with his mother, Charles Barkley, the former pro basketball player, and his mom was upset with him because he had voted for George Bush in an election. And his mom said to him, Charles, don't you know he's the rich man's president? To which Charles Barkley replied, Mom, we are the rich people. At least he recognized it, right? At least he recognized that. But guess what? Look around. This room is full of rich people. Full of rich people. No, you can look around. It's okay. It exercises your neck and it keeps you moving a little bit. When you compare our lot in life with the vast majority of the world around us, we are wild beyond our richest. I mean, wild beyond our, our, our wildest. I mean, I'll get it out in a second. We're rich beyond our wildest dreams. Really. Most people in the world could never, ever in their, in their best fantasy imagine living like you and I live. They couldn't imagine having the abundance of food that we have. They couldn't imagine having the, the things, the, the physical things, cars, the homes, the TVs, the DVD players, the cell phones, the, uh, I mean, the abundance of things that we have. Not the things just that we need, but the things that, uh, that we don't need that we have anyway. We can pretty much, for the most part, go out to eat at restaurants when you want to, if you just don't feel like cooking at home. And who in the world does that apart from us? On Thanksgiving Day this past week, most of us enjoyed a meal that most people in the world could never even fantasize about actually having at one time. Think about that. 
We are incredibly blessed compared to most of the world. If you own just one Bible, you realize you're abundantly blessed more than one third of the world does not have even access to a Bible, to a single Bible. You're rich. If you woke up this morning with more health than illness, you're blessed than far more than a million people who won't survive this week. If you've never experienced the danger of battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of torture, or the pangs of starvation, you're ahead of five million people around the world today who are dealing with that. If you attended church this morning without fear of harassment or arrest or torture or death, you're more blessed than three billion people in the world today who can't do that. Think about it in these terms. If you have money in the bank, a little bit of money in your wallet, and some spare change in a dish somewhere, you're among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. We're rich people, right? We're fluent when you think of it in those kinds of terms. And you would think that all these blessings would make us the most grateful people in the world, but in fact, they don't. They don't. They tend to generate the opposite in us. We're an awful lot like the, the little kid who was out with his mom one day and a man walks up and gives the kid an orange. To which the kid looks up at his mom and his mom says to him, son, what do you say to the nice man? To which he tosses the orange back and says, peel it. That's how we become, isn't it? A lot like that. Or more like John Rockefeller when asked how much more money does it take to satisfy a man, he says, just a little more. Just a little more. So fluence tends to generate ingratitude. It is a reason, not the only. Pride is another reason, I think, that ingratitude roots into our hearts. Sometimes we're deluded into thinking that we have earned what we have and that somehow the affluence that we have is a result of who we are and what we've done and our brilliance and our hard work and so on and so forth. And so sometimes it's pride that is the root of our ingratitude. Other times it's just forgetfulness. And Psalm 103, verse 2, the psalmist speaks to this issue. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Because if you forget them, you quickly divulge into ingratitude. Hosea chapter 13, verse 6, God speaking, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. When they became proud, what happened? Well, they forgot me. Got me. This, this pattern that seems to play out in history. Prosperity leads to pride, which leads to a forgetfulness of God. When we are prosperous, we become swelled up in our own pride. We forget the source of our blessings and we become ungrateful. It becomes the symptom of that problem. Sometimes ingratitude just becomes the habit of our lives, right? Sometimes it's not just affluence or pride or things like that or forgetfulness. It's just habit. Sometimes we just become habitually ungrateful. I mean, ingratitude and grumbling can be addictive. We can, we can get into to these, these modes in our life where we pick up at some point this, this habit of complaining and griping. It becomes so ingrained in our nature that we don't even realize that we're doing it. And, and it just becomes the pattern of our life. We become people who are grumbling and complaining and consistently unhappy and unsatisfied or dissatisfied with who we are and what we've got and where we are. 
We pick up attitudes of entitlement. Uh, We think that God owes us certain things, and when he doesn't deliver those things, those things that we want are the things that we think he owes us. Then we become angry, and we become embittered, and we complain, and we gripe, and gratitude flies out the window. Some of us are just habitually ungrateful people. Habitually. God blesses us, but there's always something we don't like about it. He blesses us more, and there's something we don't like about that. And there's something more that we want. There there are other things we could list as, as reasons, but the Bible consistently calls God's people to be people of gratitude. Did you hear that? God's word calls us. And let me say it another way. God's word commands us to be people of gratitude. Listen to just a few excerpts of passages that speak to this. Philippians 4, 6. Paul writes, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In everything with thanksgiving. He's saying to these these believers, you've got some problems that can create anxiety in your life, but don't be anxious about it. Just fill up your mind and your heart with prayer. Turn to God. Be grateful for who you are. Be grateful for what you've got. And in the mix of that, pray for what you don't. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And so Paul links sanctification and maturity in the faith with gratitude. That's interesting, isn't it? How do you, how do you identify somebody who's mature in their faith? Their lives are marked by gratitude. The two are tied together. Show me somebody who's consistently ungrateful. And they might claim to be spiritually mature, but their lives tell a different story. One of the signs of maturing in our faith is a consistent presence of gratitude. Paul's arguing that in Colossians 2 and 3. Chapter 3 of Colossians, verses 15 through 17. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Further down, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, give thanks. Always be thankful. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and following. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God. Be grateful in all things. Ingratitude is no small deal. Ingratitude is nothing short of an absolute defiance of the commands of Almighty God. Did you hear that this morning? It is not a small deal. It's not a small deal. There's no such thing as a consistent pattern of sin in our life that's a small deal. Now, we tend to look at things like ingratitude and say, well, it's not murder. I mean, it's not really harming anybody else, we say to ourselves, right? So what if I'm not always grateful? So what if I complain a little bit? So what if I gripe a little bit? So what if I'm unhappy with my circumstances here and there? So what? It's sin. And God has commanded us to be grateful. So if ingratitude is no small deal, if it's a big deal, 
if, if a pattern of it in our lives is a really big deal and a sign that we're really not mature in our faith, then how is it that people like us can do battle against ingratitude? How is it that we can overcome our, our tendency towards ingratitude? How do we fight this? How do we overcome it? Well, I think if we turn our attention to John chapter 10 to this lengthy passage that we've been looking at for a few weeks, we find some answers. And we can summarize the answer by simply saying we must turn our eyes with trusting hearts toward our sovereign shepherd. Let's trust in our sovereign shepherd. We've been walking through John chapter 10 for a couple of weeks. And we've seen Jesus speaking to a crowd. And he's been using an extended metaphor. This metaphor of shepherds and sheep. And he's been using it um, to describe his relationship with his people. And to contrast that with the false religious leaders who were claiming to be the shepherds of his people. What were actually, he describes them as thieves and robbers and hirelings. And people who don't have the sheep's best interest, but people who've actually come to kill, steal, and destroy. And Jesus has been using this ongoing metaphor, this ongoing illustration of a shepherd and a sheep and how shepherds cared for their sheep as as an illustration of how he cares for his people. And we've been looking at this in depth for a couple of weeks and we've already identified Jesus as being the good shepherd, the great shepherd. And we've seen how he relates to his sheep, his sheep being his people. He knows them. He calls them by name, right? We saw that. He knows them. He knows them before they know him. He calls them. He comes to them. He calls them by name. They hear him and they respond to him. And he leads them and they follow him. We've seen all of that, right? It's how the shepherd, the great shepherd, deals with his sheep. And the sovereignty of of the shepherd permeates all of this. We haven't highlighted that too much in the last couple of weeks. But this is all the shepherd's doing, right? He's the one who knows. He's the one who calls. He's the one who leads. He's the one who's initiating and in control of this entire process. We could say, in a real sense, this shepherd is sovereign over his sheep. And that's fundamental to a sheep understanding how to navigate under his leadership. It's fundamental to his sheep understanding how to cultivate gratitude. In order for us to overcome the tendency to ingratitude and to work towards becoming grateful people, Jesus Christ, our great shepherd, what he has done and what he is doing has to be the anchor of our gratitude. Do you hear that? He has to be the anchor of our gratitude. What he's done and what he's continuing to do every day for us has to be the anchor. If the anchor for our gratitude is going to be in other people, that is to say, if, we're going to, if what determines what we're going to, whether or not we're going to be grateful or ungrateful on any given day is other people, guess what? We're going to consistently be ungrateful people. If, if, if what's going to determine whether you and I are grateful or ungrateful on any given day is the circumstances that we'll face that day, then guess what? We're going to consistently be pretty ungrateful people because circumstances change and they move and they're unpredictable and they're uncertain. If what's going to determine whether we're grateful or ungrateful on any given day is the possessions we have, how much money is in our bank, what's going on in our careers or the the accomplishments in our lives, those things fluctuate and change and move and they're unpredictable and they're not a firm foundation for gratitude. If those are the things that are our focus on any given day, ingratitude's not far behind. But gratitude comes when we understand 
that we have a sovereign Savior, a great shepherd, who has done some things for us that cannot be undone, and who is every single day doing some things for us and through us and in us and around us that are good and that endure, that are cause for gratitude. I just want to highlight three quick things uh, with our time that's left this morning that he has done, that he is doing as our good shepherd, that should anchor our gratitude, that should make us grateful people, regardless of what's going on in our careers or our accomplishments, regardless of what's going on in the circumstances that move and shift around us, regardless of what's happening in the people around us that God has placed in our lives for whatever reasons. These things should anchor our gratitude, regardless of what happens in those other venues of life. The first is this. Our sovereign shepherd has secured our salvation. That's a lot of S's, I know. He secured our salvation. Listen to what he reminds us of here in this this passage. In verse 9, verse 11, and then verses 17 through 18. Listen to these things that Jesus says. Verse 9, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be what? He'll be saved. He'll be saved. That is to say, as we laid it out last week, if a person, any man, any woman, any person places their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. It's a guarantee. They'll be saved. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you've placed your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've bowed before His Lordship in your life, then you are saved. The Bible declares that to be true. But exactly how is it that that took place? And why is it that that can take place? Verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then further down in verses 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This is the charge I received from my father. One of the anchors to our gratitude has got to be a constant awareness of the fact that Jesus Christ has secured our salvation. That we're saved. Are you grateful this morning that you're saved? Are you grateful this morning that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you what you could never possibly do for yourself? He has died for you. He has laid down his life that you might be saved. Thinking in terms of the shepherding illustration that Jesus is using here in the context, this, this idea of being a shepherd for sheep could be a pretty dangerous proposition. Sheep are pretty helpless. They're, they're, pretty, um, they're pretty weak in the sense of being able to defend themselves. They're pretty, much, they're pretty much at the complete disposal of the shepherd that's leading them, right? I mean, what is a sheep going to do uh, when a bear attacks? Bah! That's not going to get anywhere. They're not particularly fast. Don't have sharp claws, sharp teeth at least compared to a bear or a wolf or the predators, other predators would come after them. No, they're not. They're, I mean, it was a dangerous world that sheep lived in then, they live in now. There are predators, there's wolves, there's bears. We've already seen in this text that there are robbers and that there are thieves, that there are people with very bad intentions that would seek to destroy the flock all the time. And so being a shepherd was a pretty dangerous proposition. You were constantly having to put yourself between bad things and the sheep, Right? A wolf comes along, the sheep are sitting ducks, unless what? Unless the shepherd gets out in front and puts himself between the wolf and the sheep, and he fights them off. And that's what a shepherd did. 
They fight off wolves. But fight off bears. Read about David in the Old Testament. David was a shepherd, and he talks about fighting off bears. He talks about fighting off wolves. That's what shepherds had to do. When thieves, when robbers came along and tried to, to steal sheep, well, what's a sheep going to do about that? Bah? Nothing, right? And those sheep are sitting ducks unless the shepherd does what? Unless the shepherd puts himself in between the bad guys and the sheep and he, and he fights them off. That was part of the work of a shepherd, was to fight off the bad guys, to fight off the predators. It was what shepherds did. He put his life in between the predators and the sheep. Jesus has already claimed to be the exclusive way into God's kingdom. We saw that last week when he said, I am the door. I am the exclusive way into the kingdom of God. How could he make such a claim? He tells us right here. He's able to make that kind of a claim because he says this right on the heels of it. I can tell you that I'm the exclusive way because I'm a shepherd who lays down my life for my sheep. He lays down his life for his sheep. And he plays off of this shepherd and sheep illustration. The idea of the shepherd getting, putting his life between the predator and the sheep. And he says, it's exactly what I've done for my flock. I've done the very same thing. I, I, I have put myself in between the predators and the sheep. And I have defeated the predators, but I've defeated them in a way that's wholly unique. Not by going hand to hand in combat against them. Not by picking up my staff and going after the predators. But I have defeated the predators by doing what? By laying down my life. By laying down my life and giving it. And then taking it back up again. It's really a remarkable thing to see and a remarkable thing to say. Because when you think in terms of what that means, who are the enemies of his flock? It's not wolves. It's not bears. What are the, what are the great predators, the great enemies of his people? The great enemies, or the greatest of them, are sin and death, aren't they? Sin and death. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of the glory of God. That makes us susceptible to the predator of sin. Because of our of our voluntary choice to engage in sin, we become permeated with sin, and we now are subject to the wages of that sin, which the Bible says is what? Eternal death. We are sitting ducks for the predators of sin and death. And we are completely, as much as a sheep is, in, is incapable before a wolf of defending itself, we have absolutely no defense against those predators whatsoever. Our only hope of survival is what? That there would be a great shepherd who would put his own life in between us and those predators and would destroy them for us. John chapter 1, verse 9, you remember John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Speaking of Jesus, in laying down his life, dying on a cross, shedding his very own blood, he who knew no sin became what? He became our sin. And he endured the full wrath of God on our sin. 
that we might not be subject to the predators of sin and death anymore. He died our death. He paid our price by willingly laying down his life to destroy the wolves that would seek to destroy us. He sacrificed himself for the flock. theological term for this is substitutionary atonement. Are you grateful this morning for the fact that you're saved and you're saved because the great shepherd laid down his life for you? You and I were just as helpless as a sheep in a fold. And the predators that came against our soul had every right to come against them and had everything they needed to win to ultimately forever destroy us. And that would be the case except for the fact That the great shepherd laid down his life for us. And you notice the way he describes what he does does there. He's he's in full control of this process, right? I am the great shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Nobody took his life from him. He willingly put himself between us and sin and death. And he gave his life. He laid it down. But he didn't just lay it down. He laid it down in order that he might once again do what? Take it back up. A dead shepherd leaves the sheep flock vulnerable. But we don't have a dead shepherd. We have one who died, but he now lives. Having defeated the predators that came across and came after our souls. This is why Jesus came. He came to lay down his life and to take it back up. He said it another way. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. This was his way of doing that. If there's anything that should anchor our daily gratitude, it should be the reality that we have a great shepherd who has laid down his life for us. That while we were helpless, while we were hopeless, the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Are you grateful for that this morning? Does that, does that, does that, does that cause something to go on inside of your heart that says, man, I don't think about that enough. I don't wake up enough days saying, Lord Jesus, thank you for laying down your life for me. Whatever happens to me this day, whatever circumstances come across my my radar today, whatever people I'm going to encounter, whatever happens to me this day, good, bad, indifferent, nothing can change the fact that I have a great shepherd who laid down his life for me. And whatever temporary trouble I might have to face today, whatever temporary trouble I might have to face in this moment or this season of my life, is nothing compared to... To what you've done on my behalf that can never be taken away. One of the things that should drive us to gratitude is the reality that we have a Savior who secured our salvation by laying down his life for us. But that's not all he's done for us. He laid down his life for us, but he continues to protect us and to keep us. And that's something else that should generate in us gratitude, right? The idea that we serve a risen shepherd who not only has laid down his life and risen again, but he still consistently, daily, every single day, protects and keeps us. We see that in verse 9. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. And he'll go in and out and he'll find pasture. I mentioned this to you last, uh, last week just briefly. The idea of, of going in and out and finding pasture was a picture of safety and a picture of security. You didn't just go running around willy-nilly in that culture by day or by night. Uh, anytime you wanted to, because there were 
bad people and they were bad predators. And you had to be very careful where you went and what you did because it wasn't safe. It wasn't secure. And so the idea that, that, that somebody could enter by a particular shepherd and he could go in and out whenever he pleased or whenever she pleases, day or night, and find pasture, that is a, a picture of absolute safety and protection. It's the complete absence of threat, no fear of predators, no fear, fear of thieves and robbers. It's absolute security. And this dovetails off the other things. So the idea that, that there's this great shepherd who has now laid down his life for his sheep. He's defeated their greatest en- enemies. And now they're free to live in security and in freedom without fear and without threat. And he consistently, daily protects them and keeps them. Further down in chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says these words. Speaking of his sheep again, using the same illustration, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Get that phrase. They will never perish. Did you hear that this morning? If you're a Christian this morning, you can rest assured you will never perish. You will never perish. It is a guarantee. No way. Not going to happen. Never Christians die, but they don't perish. That's what he's saying. We die, but we don't perish. Even when we die, and that's the, I mean, would you say that that's one of the worst things that can happen to us in this experience of this life is death? One of the things that we tend to be least anxious to have happen to us? Even that, even death, becomes simply a doorway into the presence of the great shepherd forever. Never perish. Will never perish. Eternal death, eternal hell can never have a hold on God's people, on the sheep of his flock. Never. Why is it that eternal death can never touch God's people? Why is it that people like you and me who have placed our faith in the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, will never perish? Is it because we never sin again? Is it because we're, 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 we're so, so holy and so perfect we'll never perish? Is it because, um, uh, because we deserve eternal life? Is it because we're somehow spiritually, uh, intrinsically spiritual people? It's not because of any of those reasons. No, it's because we have a sovereign shepherd who laid down his life and has taken it up again and is actively protecting and actively securing and actively keeping us right up to the end. You see, it's not just what Jesus Christ, our great shepherd, has done for us in the past and laying down his life, but it's what he's doing right this second, right this moment. He is keeping us secure in his flock so that there is no way, no circumstance, no situation that could, that could ever, no, no eventuality that could ever come to bear in our lives that would somehow cause us to fall out of that grace, that would somehow cause us to lose what he has given to us. Christians face discouragement, but will never perish. Believers will face pain and will face heartache, but will never perish. Believers will face grief and they'll face loss and they'll face failures and they'll face persecutions and they'll face hard times, but we will never, ever perish. Because our great shepherd is keeping us and he's holding us and he's shepherding us and he's getting us to the end of the course. Secure 
and safe. There is absolutely nothing in our life experience that can separate us from him. Did you hear that? In Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and following. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that's security, right? Nothing can separate us from him. Nothing. There is no circumstance in our lives that can occur, that can cause us once again to be outside of his flock. There is no failure on the part of any one of us that could ever disqualify us from his flock. There is no person, there is no being that can rip us from his hands. Are you grateful for that this morning? Does that generate gratitude in your heart? To realize not only is the great shepherd laid down his life for you, But even at this moment, he's securing you in spite of our sin, in spite of our inconsistency, in spite of our ingratitude. He's holding us and he's securing us and he's keeping us right to the end of the course. Actively maintaining our salvation should generate gratitude. It's not our ability to hold on to him. It's all about his ability and determination to hold on to us. And he's determined to hold on to you if you know him this morning. Are you grateful for that? I'm not grateful enough for that. Finally, a third thing. He provides abundantly for us in verse 10, the second part. I came that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. By his substitutionary death and his subsequent resurrection, he secured for us eternal life. And he destroyed our worst enemies, death and sin and hell and Satan, who's behind all of those things. He didn't simply come to secure us from those things, though. He came that we might have life and that we might have it what? Abundantly. That speaks to provision. It's not just that he's, that he's, that he's come and he's kept us out of hell and, and pretty much we're, you know, that's, that's, that's it. That's all you got. No. He said, I've come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. I've come that I might be able to provide for you as a great shepherd. I might provide for you pastures, he talked about earlier. That I might provide for you way above and beyond. Just bare subsistence. You know, we don't have that much time this morning. But if we stopped and thought about all the ways that our great shepherd has provided for us, I don't see how we could do anything but be grateful. He provides for us our needs, right? Are your needs met this morning? Are your needs met? He's promised to meet them. I bet he has. I suspect that for all of us, our needs have been met, and we could probably spend the rest of the afternoon listing all of the wants and desires above and beyond our needs that he's met for us abundantly, right? We could. He's provided our needs. He's provided so many of our wants, material blessings, He's provided us with spiritual blessings, hasn't he? Have there been spiritual blessings in your life? Those come in a lot of different ways, don't they? 
Sometimes they come as the spiritual high water marks, those moments where, where God just does something remarkable in your life through some event or through some series of events or just through your daily devotional reading or through some fantastic sermon that you hear. Yeah. Um, God uses all sorts of things around us to, to, to spiritually bless us and to grow us. Good things. But he also uses an awful lot of painful things, doesn't he? He does, doesn't he? Part of his providing for us, part of his providing spiritual blessings in our life, sometimes come in the form of spiritual lessons that have to be learned through pain and disappointment and loss. Some of the greatest spiritual blessings that he brings to our life are only learned that way. Aren't they? To know what it is to lose something dear. And then to know the peace of Christ that passes understanding on the heels of that is a spiritual blessing that you don't learn until you go through it. To understand and appreciate the spiritual blessing of healing in your life, you don't really get it until you go through deep pain and you come out on the other side and you see it and you sense it and you feel it. See, those are spiritual blessings that you don't get except by going through awful circumstances. And even those awful circumstances, although not good and pleasant and fun in the moment, are really blessings. They're part of the ways in which our great shepherd provides abundantly for us. How is it that we can be people who are grateful, who, who give thanks in all things? By the way, you hear Paul say that. He doesn't say give thanks for all things. He says, he says give thanks what? In all things. How do we give thanks in grief? How do we give thanks in pain? How do we give thanks in heartache and in loss? We give thanks in them because we understand that we're part of a flock and we have a great shepherd who leads us places with a purpose. And he leads us through valleys sometimes that, that lead us to abundance on the other side. And that if we're in the middle of grief, if we're in the middle of pain, if we're in the middle of heartbreak, if we're in the middle of loss, it's because he desires to bless us abundantly through it. That's how we can give thanks in the middle of it. If we think that life is out of control and that circumstances are winning the day, then we'll never be grateful in the midst of pain or grief or loss. We won't. But if we understand that we have a sovereign shepherd who's in control of those moments... And is using them for spiritual blessing in our lives and for our good, we can be grateful in them. Do you see that? It's a difference of perspective. He provides for us all things because all things work together for good for those who love Him. All, what things? All things. Just the good things? All things. Even the hard things. I think of the Apostle Paul who talks about having a thorn in his flesh. He doesn't tell us what this thing is, but it's, it's awful to him, right? Awful enough that he's asked God multiple times to remove it. And God's answer every time for this awful thing in his life was what? No, my grace will be sufficient. I'm not going to remove it. You're going to continue to endure it. And you know what? Paul was able to be grateful in the midst of that. At the end, even though God did not remove the pain in his life, He was able to be grateful in it. Why? Because he said, look, it's okay. This pain is good for me because God is using it to keep me humble. Paul was able to look beyond the pain and see God's greater purpose, humility. See, God's working a spiritual blessing in my life, the blessing of humility. And this is one of the tools in his toolbox to bring it to bear in my life. So, hey, 
I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. That's maturity. That's spiritual maturity. To be able to be thankful in every circumstance. Because we see the the sovereignty of the shepherd leading us. All right, so let me just answer, ask the question, how do we deal with this as Christians? How do we deal with this? How do we overcome ingratitude? How do we battle against the sin of ingratitude? Let me just give you three quick things. And you just put them all up there, JP, all, all at one time. So I think they're, they're, they're pretty self-explanatory. It begins by learning to identify and actively battle ingratitude. That is to say, we've got to stop looking at ourselves and saying, it's okay to be ungrateful people. We've got to stop saying, giving ourselves excuses for being irritable, for being people who are marked by complaining and grumbling and dissatisfaction with our lives and ingratitude. We've got to stop excusing in our lives, recognize it, identify it as an active sin in our our lives and determine to do battle against it. That's the beginning point. It's making the determination, I'm going to deal with this in my life with the help of of Christ, I'm going to battle this thing in my life. I'm not going to allow it to go on anymore. I'm not going to write it off as no big deal. I'm going to decide that it's a part of the spiritual battle every day in my life. and I'm going to choose to fight it and not give in. That's where it begins. And I think secondly, we actively just choose gratitude and joy. We make a choice. I'm going to be grateful. I'm going to choose gratitude today. I'm going to choose joy. These things are not suggestions in God's word. They're commands. And what he commands us to do, he equips us to do. So it must be possible for me to do this. So I'm going to. I have a choice every single day. Francie Schwartz in her book, Chicken Soup for the Soul at Work, tells a story about a guy that she knew by the name of Jerry who was always in a good mood. This guy, do you know people like that? They can be annoying at times. But this guy, Jerry was always in a good mood. He always had something positive to say. If you ever asked him how he was doing, he would always say the same thing. If I, if I was doing any better, I'd be twins. That's what he'd say every time. He was a restaurant manager and everybody loved him. Everybody loved to work for him because he was always so pro- positive. And one day, uh, the, the author of the book, Francie, says to this man, he says, I don't get it, Jerry. You can't possibly be, be upbeat all the time. How do you do it? To which he replied, each morning I wake up and I say to myself, Jerry, you have two choices today. You can either choose to be in a bad mood or you can choose to be in a good one. And I choose to be in a good mood. Oh, it's not that easy, Schwartz said. Yes, it is, Jerry responded. Life is all about choices. Several years after that conversation, Jerry's restaurant was robbed and the thieves panicked and shot him and he was rushed to the emergency room and he spent 18 hours on the operating table and several weeks in intensive care before he recovered and thankfully he did survive. Later he was asked, how did he do it? And he said this, quote, when I was laying on the floor, I remembered I had two choices. (laughs) Don't you just love this guy? I had two choices. I could choose to live or I could choose to die. I chose to live. The paramedics were encouraging, but when they wheeled me into the emergency room and I saw the looks on their faces, when I saw in, uh, in, in the looks on their faces of the doctors and the nurses, I got really scared because in their eyes, I read, he's a dead man. And I knew I needed to take action. And he goes on to say, there was this big burly nurse shouting questions at me and she asked, are you allergic to anything? Yes, I replied, and the doctors and nurses instantly stopped working, and they waited for my reply. Bullets, I answered. (laughs) 
And over their laughter, I yelled, I'm choosing to live. Operate on me as I am alive, not dead. And praise the Lord, he lived. Thanks to the skill of the doctors and the nurses who cared for him. And to his attitude. And to the grace of God in his life. Francis Swartz said she saw Jerry six months after the incident and asked him how he was doing. Guess what he replied? If I was any better, I'd be twins. Something about that guy that teaches us something, right? That we do make choices every day. We can choose to have a good day. We can choose to have a bad attitude. We can choose gratitude or we can choose ingratitude. We can choose joy or we can choose grumbling and complaining and the other choices that we have. But we have to actively battle to make the right choice. And then finally build in some habits that encourage gratitude. You know, in the Old Testament, God prescribed some. People had to actually come and they gave offerings Thank offerings, they were called. They brought parts of their wealth on a regular basis, and it was God's way of reminding them all the time to be thankful. It was a habit that they built in their life to remind them to be grateful people. And, you know, you and I need to build some habits into our lives, don't we? We can build habits into our lives to cultivate gratitude. We have some in our church culture. There's something called the Lord's Supper. That's built in as a, as a reminder to us to be grateful for what our shepherd has done for us and laying down his life. Another thing is the offering. The offering. Every Sunday when you come and you give, it's a part of, it's a way of reminding us to be thankful. It's a, it's a way of reminding us to be people who are marked by gratitude, giving thanks to the Lord. We give back to the Lord not because He needs our money, but because we need to express gratitude and be thankful people and cultivate that in our lives. And you know what? Actually, gathered worship on any given week should be an exercise in gratitude. How would our lives be different if every time we gathered to worship, we came with the intention of expressing gratitude and thanksgiving to God for what he's done in our lives. If that was our set purpose each and every week, this week I'm coming with a grateful heart. This week I'm coming to give thanks to the Lord and to cultivate gratitude in my life for what God has done for me, for what he is continuing to do for me, and what he's going to do for me in the future. What about you? Are you grateful people? Are you like me? Do you have some work to do in this area? The good news is the work can be done. The battle can be won. But we have to engage. And I pray that this morning you'll engage in this area of your life. That when people encounter you this week, they will find some of the most grateful people on the planet. Not because your circumstances are great. Not because your health is perfect. Not because the people around you are pleasant to deal with all the time. But because you have a sovereign Savior who's laid down his life for you, who's taken his life back up, who's providing every single thing you need and abundantly more than what you could ever need, and who's going to secure you to the very end of your life and usher you into the presence of God forever to eternal joy and pleasure. That's reason to be thankful. Let's work on that this week. Father, we confess before you this morning our sin of ingratitude. In small ways and in big ways, That sin roots down into our hearts. And Lord, we confess our tendency to write it off as minor, as no big deal. And to give in to this pattern of ingratitude on a regular basis. We pray, O God, for your forgiveness in this area of our life this morning. 
And we pray that you would remind us, Lord Jesus, our great shepherd, of what you've done for us. You have laid down your life. You have secured our salvation. Remind us of how you are caring for us and providing for us and securing us each and every day. Anchor our gratitude in what you have done and are doing in our lives every day. Not in the circumstances of life that swirl around us. Change our hearts, O Lord. Make us grateful, grateful people. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.